Alright, so I found that many of us fear a holy war is kind of a skeleton in God's closet. This tough topic where if we were to really kind of open up the closet doors, like open up scripture and take a closer look, I think the fear is that we might find God is not truly good or worthy of our trust. And yet I found that's because we often have a caricature of what's actually going on in the biblical story. So one of the things I want to try to do tonight is offer some paradigm shifts that have helped me over the years. Uh, where we can kind of confront some of the caricatures that are out there about the Old Testament, and that we can reclaim a healthier, biblical, historic, robust understanding. Uh, We see this topic arising because of the goodness of God, not in spite of it or contradiction to it. That's my biggest hope at the end of the night tonight, is that we'd actually be able to reclaim a greater confidence that God is good through and through, all the way down in his very bones. So, uh, we're going to dive in. This topic of holy war, violence in the Old Testament, it's, it's kind of a personal topic for me. Uh, back in the day, I had the chance to work for about six months on the Navajo Reservation in Arizona. And as I was working with families and the community there, I got to know a bit more about uh, our own history as a country with Native peoples. And one of the things that was disheartening to see was some of the massacres and forced migrations and uh, U.S. Senator Daniel K. Inouye at the time uh, when I was studying this, he, he remarked how of over 800 uh, treaties that we've made with Native peoples, we've broken every single one. And it's seen sort of the legacy and impact on the reservation of that history even today. One of the things that was a challenge for me in particular about that was like a black eye kind of in the, the center of all this in the 1800s was an ideology called Manifest Destiny. And that ideology liked to use imagery um, about this being like a new promised land. And with uh, Europeans coming over as like a, the, like a new Israel of sorts, which unfortunately put Native peoples in the position of the Canaanites. And I found myself as a new Christian, I was in college, uh, kind of a newer believer, and found myself wrestling with God, if this is who you are and your story, like, I kind of feel like I'd rather be on the side of the Navajo, right? And wrestling with how do I reconcile the violence in the Old Testament, in particular Israel's conquest of Canaan, how do I reconcile that with my faith? Well, over the years, there have been some, again, paradigm shifts that have helped me, I want to kind of offer tonight, uh, where I think we see something drift different happening in the biblical story. Something that's not only like, as we look throughout world history, Holy War is like splashed across the pages of just mainstream history, across the nations, the global history of the world. People using the gods to justify their conquest, conquering their neighbors and taking their stuff. Yet I want to suggest to you tonight that Israel's story in the Old Testament, it's not just like the same story with a few lines drawn in slightly different directions. It's more like the Bible is taking this mainstream picture of Holy War, painted across the history of our world, and flipping it radically upside down on its head and giving us a very different picture, uh, one that I would suggest is even a great source of hope today uh, for my friends on the Navajo Reservation and uh, others around the world who uh, at times can find themselves in difficult circumstances in our global world today. All right, so the way tonight will be divided, first half, I want to try and go, what's the big story that Israel and Canaan, this encounter, fits into. And in the second half, uh, I want to look a little more specifically at what I like to call the drastic marching orders, some of the commands that can sound almost genocidal at first glance. But I want to start out first here talking about the big story. So I want to ask, when you hear the word holy warriors, what kind of image, what kind of people come to mind? What kind of images? Uh, If you're anything like me, the first image that comes to my mind is something like this. 
right? Um, I grew up on Rambo, like love Rambo. He is uh, the epitome of what I like to call the muscle-bound machine gun heroes, right? What I mean by muscle-bound is like we think of holy words, some of them as people who are strong, who've got strength and strategy. They have been training and preparing for the fight. Machine guns, meaning they've got advanced weaponry. You even think about something like 9-11 and go, man, they did have numbers, but they were able to turn, uh, horrifically, turn an airplane into a strategic weapon. And so we tend to think of holy wars as those who have advanced weaponry to use in conquer. And then heroes, uh, meaning they believe they're justified because of how great they are, or how great their civilization is. They're justified in conquering their neighbors and taking their stuff. Now, the irony is, well, I, I think I would sum this up by saying we tend to think of holy war as the strong using the gods or gods to justify their conquest of the weak. What I would suggest to you, however, that we find in the Bible is the opposite. It's not the strong using the gods to justify their conquest of the weak. It's God arising on behalf of the weak against the tyranny of the strong when it's raged for far too long. Think about who is Israel in the story. They are a nation of slaves who have been getting their tails kicked on the outskirts of the Midas imperial powerhouse of the ancient world for generations. And they are going up against the mightiest empires. This is a a nation of slaves going up against empires with all the advanced weaponry and firepower the age had to offer. So what I want to do here in this first half is take each of these categories, muscle-bound, machine-gun, and heroes, and show how Israel's story flips our expectations on their head with each of these categories. So let's start with the first one. Uh, well, let's kind of start with the second one, machine guns. Does Israel have machine guns? Uh, well, obviously, no, right? Uh, this is the ancient world that hadn't been invented yet. But what I mean by this, again, is advanced weaponry. And if we think again about Israel's story, it's not like there was a stockpile of AK-47s waiting for them in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt. Like, Israel finds herself radically outgunned and outmanned in these encounters that come up. So Canaan, we find, has horses and chariots, which were kind of like tanks and jet fighters back in the day, right? Like, this was the uh, most advanced firepower of the ancient world. Israel, in contrast, has basically essentially like sticks and stones, whatever they've been able to muddle together in the wilderness. Israel is like a kindergartner taking on the high school senior class with a wiffle bat. Right? Like they should get whooped. Next, if you think about defenses, uh, Canaan has heavily fortified military outposts like Jericho, able to repel any incoming attack. Israel's defense system is a small wooden box that she built in the wilderness, the Ark of the Covenant. And yet the significance is that God's presence goes with her to defend her. Think about generals. Canaan has military generals who have been practicing strategy in conquering the surrounding nations for generations, while Israel's generals have been fending off snakes in the wilderness. If you think about armor, Canaan has high-tech metal armor, uh, the best of the day, where Israel, we read, is still wearing the same ratty clothes they came out of Egypt with 40 years ago. Israel is storming Fort Knox with a water pistol. Now, if we also think about the warriors themselves, Canaan is described as a land of giants who have been feasting off the land of milk and honey for generations. 
Israel is a comparative nation of runts who have been enduring wilderness survival, surviving on prison food, essentially like bread and water, right? Manna from heaven and the water from the rock. She's been uh, just barely making, not surviving, not, not thriving as she ekes out this existence in the wilderness. Canaan has wealth and affluence with all the psychological confidence and all that this can bring. Um, Israel, in contrast, is, is frightened and scared entering before Israel is like um, steps into Canaan like ants marching under elephants' feet. <clears throat> All right, so I would suggest to you, if we're thinking about this category, kind of machine guns or advanced weaponry, that what Israel has is less like this and more like this, right? They should get their tails kicked. They are stepping in outgunned and outmanned. Uh, in the Psalms, we read this famous verse where Israel sings, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. This was Israel's battle cry. Going, the mighty powerhouses of our ancient world, they've got the chariots, they've got the horses, they've got the advanced firepower. They are way bigger, badder, and stronger than us and crush us. But our hope is in the name of the Lord our God who goes with us as we and wandering people. Israel is the dramatic, laughable underdog. And this is uh, antithetical to mainstream polar wars. She's not just like a little bit uh, outranked. Like, if you think about like the NFL, for example, this is not like one slightly lesser ranked team going up against a slightly higher ranked team. This is like the NFL Super Bowl champions, Canaan, going up against like your local high school Kiwi football league, right? Like, it's a different league altogether. We're talking about an empire versus a nation of slaves. Their only hope is that God fights for them. Okay, well, let's go to the next category. Muscle man. Is Israel, this is me, sorry, I had to, sorry to brag, but, you know. Um, Israel, uh, does Israel have muscle man? Like, does she have strength and strategy on her side? And once again, we find that no. Uh, continually, Israel's strategies are ridiculous. Like, they look completely ludicrous. For, if you're thinking through battle strategy, Israel's are, like, the worst design probably ever, right? Uh, but they're intentionally so. So, for example, when we come up to Jericho, the first battle going into Canaan, and so Canaan is this heavily fortified military outpost, armed to the teeth, soldiers, everything else, and if you're Joshua and the armies of Israel coming up and you're like, okay, how are we going to take Jericho? God, what's the battle strategy? What's the plan? We're waiting for it. And God's like, all right, wait for it. Wait for it. Here it is. You're going to march around the walls for seven days and blow trumpets. Dumb battle strategy, right? Like, if you can imagine World War II, like the Allied forces storming the beaches of Normandy, not with weapons, but with like rock guitars and battle drums, or, you know? It would just be like, what are you guys thinking? Or the Mongols wa- marching up to the Great Wall of China, not with weapons, but making music instead of war. It's a ridiculous picture, and it's designed to be, though, because it's actually communicating a message that worship is their war for it. They go in worshiping God and looking to him as the one who fights on their behalf. Now, strategies like this are not the exception but the norm. Uh, repeatedly, we see this again and again. So take, for example, uh, Gideon. And uh, in the days of Gideon now, Israel's in the land, 
Um, but the Midianites, uh, one of the people there, like, uh, have um, taken over and are oppressing them, are outnumbering them, are crushing them. And the language and imagery that's used, it's like Israel's back in Egypt again, getting crushed under the Midianites. And so God calls Gideon, and he goes to Gideon, is, we're told, is from like the least family in the last tribe of the weakest. Basically, just like in the Exodus, like when God's ready for a revolution, he goes to the last and the least and the weakest. And God calls out Gideon, and uh, Gideon is looking at the Midianites, and says there were more of their armies and their soldiers than the sand that could be counted on the seashores. The Midianites are just like massive. And so Gideon's like, all right, so he's able to rally 32,000 troops, and they come before God, and they're like, all right, God, we're waiting for it. What's the battle strategy? They wait for it, and they wait for it. Here's what God says. says, you got too many men. I want you to send 99% of them home famous story where they drink from the water and there's those who drink like dogs and those who drink like whatever separates them uh, but whittles the army down from 32,000 to 300 to go up against the sand on the seashore militias. Once again stupid battle strategy. Like not very wise. If you can imagine like Lincoln during the Civil War telling Union soldiers hey let's just send 99% of the soldiers back home just to show we can you know make a point we can do it with 1% right. Not a good strategy. And yet, once again, it's on purpose. We're told, uh, God tells them the reason is so that Israel may not boast, my own strength has saved me. This is not a battle strategy, it's a death wish, unless God is the one doing the heavy lifting. So, here, as Israel marches up to Canaan, that's just, you know, they look less like me here and more like this, right? Like, they should just get stomped, get crushed. Uh, there is a famous verse that I love. Uh, Be still, I know that I am God. Okay? And many of us, uh, if you've heard that verse, uh, often when I see or hear that verse used today, it tends to be um, on, like, you know, maybe like on, like, a Hallmark card where there's, like, the beautiful scenery of the quiet, peaceful, serene lake, and there's the bench, and the sense is, like, go... Oh, Get away from the chaos and the clutter and the people and just get yourself to a quiet place where you can sit in stillness and uh, remove the chaos or just, you know, reflect and contemplate God. And all those things are good. Those are really good things. Get away and reflect the silence of God. Uh, But it might surprise you to know that's not the original context of the verse. This was actually originally a holy war verse. And Hebrew scholars would say that where it comes from, where it originates from, is at the Red Sea where Israel is getting chased down by Pharaoh's chariots and the armies of Egypt. And she's trapped between uh, the political forces of chaos on the one side that are going to crush her and the natural forces of chaos on the other side in the waters. And as they stand going, God, Moses, what's the strategy? What's the battle strategy? What are we going to do? And God says through Moses this. says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Be still and know that I am God. Hebrew scholars would say this thing gets kind of picked up like this thread and becomes this motif of be still and know that I am God. So when we hear that voice, or that, that verse, I think the image that we should have in our heads 
probably less like uh, the monk in the monastery reflecting on God away from the world. Not that's a bad thing. That would be a good thing. But I think the image that we should have more in our heads, it's almost like a kid with disabilities getting beat up on the playground by ten bullies who are bigger, older, and stronger than him. When suddenly he hears the voice of his father step out on the field and say, step back, son, and watch me take care of these guys for you. Be still and know that I am God. I love this quote by uh, Old Testament scholar Ben Ollenberger. He observes on this. He says, Every other nation in antiquity claimed that their gods participated in war and were responsible for giving their warriors victory, but only Israel came to understand this claim to mean that it was unnecessary to fight. He's going here, like, for Israel, the it's, it's not like, hey, let's go wage all these battles for God. It's more going, man, we need God to fight for us, or we're hosts. We don't have a chance here. Israel is not taking on the empire for God. God is taking on the empire for Israel. And this is important because I think this confronts uh, terrorist ideology today. Because right? if you think about terrorists, terrorists could say, uh, well, we're not the strong using God. We're, we're the weak going up against the strong. Right? Like We're fighting on behalf of God against the powerhouses of the world. And yet there's a difference here, too. It's not that. It's not the weak using God to justify their conquest of the strong. It's God arising on behalf of the weak and strong, right? <clears throat> this confronts terrorism today. Like, it, for Israel here, they are not like a group of cowards hiding in the shadows of caves and stepping out occasionally from the shadows to take pot shots at civilians with billions of dollars of international oil money and whatnot behind them. This is a visibly vulnerable, identifiable group of people standing out on the open battlefield about to get crushed unless God rises to their defense. I like this um, quote by another Old Testament scholar, Gerhard von Raab. He says, We would be greatly misunderstanding these wars if we sought to comprehend them as religious wars in the sense that it has become current for us. Israel did not arise to protect faith in Yahweh, but Yahweh came on the scene to defend Israel. Israel's not so much going, Hey, we're going to go fight for God. Her motto is, God will fight for us. And if he doesn't, we don't stand a chance. Okay, so we've seen that uh, Israel, they're not muscle-bound. They don't have the machine guns. Now the final question, are they heroes, right? Like, are they uh, like the, the superheroes to... What I mean by this is the sense of going, throughout history, Holy War is tend to believe we're justified in doing this and conquering you because of how great we or our civilization or our people are. So if you think about um, the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire had this ideology of the Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome. And the sense was, uh, it's going to hurt when we punch you, but it's ultimately in your best interest because we're going to enfold you into the glory of Roman civilization. And though it may hurt for a moment, it's worth it because the ideology of how great we are... uh, yeah, it's actually, we're heroes bringing you into the fold of the glorious Roman civilization. They had an ideology that saw themselves as heroes justified because of how great their civilization was. Uh, later in Western history, at times this shows up in, uh, in the colonial era as well, uh, where some uh, talk about things like the, the white man's burden came up, where there was a sense of it's almost a duty that we have to go out and, and establish our presence and and all in the world at large to bring the blessings and glory of, of our civilization, even if that means um, 
establishing our, our own governments and, and funneling resources and all back home and some of the exploitation that could occur in those contexts. And so whatever we think of those histories, the Roman Empire, colonialism, or things like that, what we have to recognize is that there is something significantly different happening in Israel's encounter with Canaan. Uh, that Israel does not use this ideology of her own greatness. In fact, we see often the opposite. Uh, this is Deuteronomy 9, a, a key Holy War passage, uh, kind of the rationale of the, they're going into Canaan. Moses tells them, remember this as you go in. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going in to take possession of their land, but rather on account of the wickedness of these nations, for you are a stiff-necked people. Not a very flattering comment. Stiff-necked. I don't know. We don't really call people that anymore. You're so stiff-necked. I don't know. But it's, uh, it's, it's like an insult, right? It's about how stubborn they are. And this should shock us. Because throughout history, you hear the phrase, uh, victors write the history books. And what's meant by that is, when you win the battle, you get to tell how it went down. And as the victors, uh, victors like to depict themselves as strong, heroic, courageous, and noble. And yet when you read throughout the Old Testament and Israel's war stories and all, she's constantly depicting herself as weak, fearful, idolatrous, unbelieving, dishonest, and disobedient. Israel is the anti-hero in the story. It's almost as if they hired a reporter to follow them around through the encounters with Canaan to meticulously track all of their greatest flaws and failures and blast them over the pages of the Old Testament. Israel's not depicted as the hero story. Rather, God is the hero. And the victory happens in spite of herself, not because of herself. Israel also had a numbers problem. Deuteronomy 7, another key Holy War passage, they're reminded, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all people. And more numerous numbers, it may not sound like that much today, but back in the day, uh, numbers implied greatness. Like it meant you had conquered and assimilated others into your, uh, into your empire and how, how big and glorious you were. Israel is depicted here as the fewest of all peoples. Why? Well, <clears throat> they had a late start. Like when God called Abraham, the other nations have been growing exponentially for a generation. Think about things like the attempted uh, genocide of Israel's uh, male children in Egypt by Pharaoh. Uh, their numbers had taken a hit. Indeed, in Ezekiel, God describes finding Israel uh, outside of Egypt. God finding Israel in Egypt. And the image he uses is finding this baby that had been discarded and left for dead, kicking and screaming in its own blood. And God adopts and takes that baby himself and washes and cleanses and makes his own. But it's, it's not a very flattering image. It's this picture of Israel's desperate estate when God brings her out of Egypt. It's the fewest of all peoples. <clears throat> all right, well, what's the significance here? If we zoom out to the 50,000-foot level, I would say the message that's being sent here would have been obvious in the ancient world. And it would be something like this, that God is choosing the smallest, weakest, most helpless, vulnerable, powerless people to declare to the mightiest, wickedest, wickedest, bloodiest, nastiest powerhouse in time. This is the kind of God he is. He is a God who identifies with the weak and the downtrodden and the oppressed. He is a God who is patient with the powerhouses of our world 
uh, when they get too arrogant and have their boots on the neck of those who are crying out for justice. And yet, though God is patient, his patience will not last forever. Time comes when God does arise to tear down Egypt and to establish his kingdom in its place. In conclusion for this first half, I think a good way of maybe summing up what we've been talking about so far is the David and Goliath story. This is a classic, famous story. Uh, You're probably familiar with it. Uh, David, we often think of it like a children's story, the underdog who takes down the big, uh, you know, giant. And that's true, but I think there's actually a lot more going on in David and Goliath's story. It is not only a holy war story. I would suggest to you it is the holy war story that gathers into itself all of these themes we've been looking at so far and brings them to a head in this, this display, like an actual encounter, but one that also has almost like a symbolic representation, too, of everything that's come before. <clears throat> Here's what I mean. We read that this battle, David and Goliath, that takes place at the Valley of Elah. And the Valley of Elah, this was the border to the last part of the Promised Land of Canaan that was left to be taken, left to be brought into Israel. And so this is the end of the, uh, this is the end of the conquest of them coming into the land. So what began back in the days of uh, Joshua is now ending generations later here in this battle between David and Goliath. This is the end here of, the, of this part of Israel's story. And as David and Goliath step up to the battlefield and the lines are drawn, uh, we see that Goliath is, uh, he's got machine guns, right? Like he's got the armor head to toe, He's got, like, the giant sword. He's got the javelin and the spear. He's got an armor bearer. He's got all of the best weaponry, advanced firepower the ancient world has to offer. He's literally muscle-bound. He's huge and intimidating, right? Uh, We look at David in contrast, and David's just like a little runt in his shepherd's outfit. Uh, Can't fit into the armor. Uh, His weapon is a sling and five stones. And yes, Malcolm Gladwell, there may be something strategic in his ability to fire that thing off. But in the ancient world, this scene looks ridiculous. Like he's going up with a shepherd's outfit and a couple rocks. Uh, When we look at their battle strategies, Goliath's strategy makes perfect sense. Like walk up to your enemy and chop off their head. (laughs) David's strategy makes no sense. Like, throw pebbles at Mount Everest and hope it falls down, right? And when we look at their ideology, Goliath boasts in, I will fight for my gods and I will crush you. David inverts this. He says, God will fight for me and he will bring you down. All these major themes that we've seen show up in the David and Goliath story. And with a sling and a stone, the giant fall. It's both this encounter between David and Goliath and the story also kind of draws into itself almost a summation of everything that's come before in Israel's encounter. It is the ultimate kind of underdog story and the God who fights on behalf of the underdog. Alright, well, I want you to be able to have something practical and pragmatic to take home out of tonight. Uh, I know often we, you know, we don't want the abstract ideas. Well, how do I implement this in my own life? And so I want to teach you how to fight a holy war. All right? So if you want to go out and fight a real holy war, like a, a biblical holy war, 
uh, how the Bible says one, then I want to give you ten steps to fighting a biblical holy war. Okay? Uh, here they are. So step number one is throw away your armor. Step number two, burn your tactical training books. No strategy allowed. Step number three, find the cheapest, most ineffective weapons you can. Uh, your kids' Nerf guns will do. Step four, visit the rehab center to find military leaders with issues. <laughs> Step five, hire a reporter to meticulously track all of your flaws and failures. Step six, boast to your enemies about how backwards your civilization is. Seven, find the biggest, baddest superpower who will surely kick your tail. Eight, pick a fight. Nine, walk in the middle of the battlefield. And ten, pray that God shows up. <laughs> Nobody in their right mind is going to fight a battle like that, right? Like, just, it would be ridiculous, ludicrous, crazy. And I think this is helpful, because sometimes a, a legitimate concern people have is, man, if you, if you believe in the Bible, if you believe in this stuff, it's going to make you more prone to want to go out and fight holy wars today. And I think the opposite's actually true. I think when we really get our hooks into the big picture of what's going on here, um, it actually should make us probably less violent rather than more. Uh, but a people who, even in our weakness, even when we seem outgunned and outmanned and the odds are stacked up against, that we don't seek to take vengeance, whatever, vindictiveness into our, own, into our hands. Rather, we look to God and trust him as the one who ultimately will arrive on our behalf. <clears throat> okay, that's the end of part one, kind of first part of tonight. Uh, as we go into part two, this will be a little shorter. But I want to remind you... Uh, Q&R, I say question and response rather than question and answer, because I may not have the answer. Right? Uh, but if you've got any questions, again, if you need this number, uh, feel free to text your questions to this number, and they can sort through those. And as we go to the next part now, uh, I want to talk about what I like to call the drastic marching orders. And this is the part I found most of us struggle with the most, that as Israel prepares to go into the land, She's given some pretty extreme marching orders. She's told the other to show no mercy, to utterly destroy them. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. And at first glance, these can sound genocidal. Like, dude, is God commanding genocide here? And indeed, many critics of Christianity used to like to use verses like these as ammunition uh, to show how uh, horrible. Uh, the God of the Bible supposedly is. So Richard Dawkins, for example, a well-known, famous atheist, uh, describes, you know, these verses describe ethnic cleansing done with xenophobic relic, bloodthirsty massacre. And is that true? Well, these are tough verses. verses. I don't want to kind of skirt around that fact. But I want to offer now here three other paradigm shifts that I found to be helpful in understanding what I think is going on with these commands, these drastic marching orders. <clears throat> Three shifts. The first one is this, to recognize the context in which these commands take place are military cities. Right? Uh, they take place in the context of cities. The Hebrew word is ir, a city. And one of the challenges is that when you and I hear the word city today, what we tend to think of is a civilian population center. Right? So I live in Phoenix, a city. When I step outside my front door, I see uh, neighbors and houses with white picket fences, maybe, not in my neighborhood, but you know. 
and like I walk down the street one way and there's a school and a hospital and the kids are playing and I walk down the other way and there's like the restaurants and people are eating and the coffee shop and everyone's hanging out you know like cities today are where the people live but it was not this way historically that's a very recent relatively new phenomenon urbanization uh, historically cities were very small and especially in the ancient Near East at this time cities were not civilian population centers they were small fortified military outposts, where the only real people inhabiting them were the soldiers defending the roads that led up to the villages and places where the people are. Back in the ancient Near East, scholars note how uh, these cities were inhabited simply by soldiers and maybe a few government officials uh, defending the roads leading up to where the civilian populations were. This is a quote by a scholar, Paul Copan, He notes, all the archaeological evidence indicates that no civilian populations existed at Jericho, Ai, and other cities mentioned in Joshua. Jericho was a small settlement of probably 100 or fewer soldiers. Now, this is why all of Israel could circle it seven times and then do battle against it on the same day. So as we read these stories, as, as Israel takes on a city, like God is pulling down the Great Wall of China, not demolishing Beijing. Like Israel is taking out the Pentagon, not New York City. These are military defensive installations. Israel is dismantling their defense. We also read of Israel uh, taking out a lot of kings. Uh, And the word here in Hebrew is melech. And at this time in ancient Greece, these kings were more like generals. That's why there's so many of them. If you're reading through Joshua and Judges, you're kind of going, man, there's like 50 kings here. and fifty. That's a lot of people in charge, right? Uh, but the idea was more like they were often generals that reported to higher generals off-site in these military federations and coalitions. And the picture here is that Israel is attacking military strongholds, knocking out generals, and putting their soldiers to flight, not invading cities, assassinating presidents, and slaughtering civilians. Israel is taking on Napoleon and his militias, not Paris and her masses. <clears throat> So that's kind of the first shift here, these military cities. Two common questions I found often arise here. Well, what about Rahab, right? She's a civilian, she's in Jericho, prostitute. Now, scholars believe that, uh, so Rahab was a prostitute. Scholars believe she ran the hostel where uh, these hostels were common in these cities. This was the place where foreign travelers would stay. And the reason why is that the military could keep an eye on them, right? It makes sense the, the, the spies would stay here so that they could keep an eye on them. And these uh, uh, hostels were often run by prostitutes because, um, unfortunately, the soldiers often wanted more than just beer, right? be kind of a tavern, hotel, outside to just stay there. Uh, so it makes sense that Rahab is there. The piece I find more interesting is that um, Rahab is the only civilian mentioned by name in the book of Joshua, and her and her family are actually spared. Another question that often comes up here, there's the phrase, it shows, it's very rare, but it's uh, three times this phrase, um, when the, the city comes down, that uh, they're told to make sure that all the men, women, and children, young and old, are uh, not left surviving. Right? And that sounds like very direct, like, this is right there, women and children, young and old, they're gone. But <clears throat> Hebrew scholars note how this is a term, uh, it's called a merism. Right? It's where you take some extreme thing to encompass everything else in between. So the phrase heaven and earth is a merit. But it's not just talking about the sky and the dirt. It's using like the highest and the lowest, the heavens and the earth, to also talk about everything in between, plants and animals and whatever else. 
Similarly, this phrase, the men, women, and children, young and old, in Hebrew, it's a merism. It's using these extremes to go, hey, knock down the military fortress and just make sure there's no one and nothing left inside. And the reality is we wouldn't expect civilians to be present. Because in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East at this time, the way battle was conducted was when news came that war was coming, battle was coming, the people would flee away from the cities to look to the cities for defense. Uh, scholar John Goldingay, uh, respected biblical scholar, makes this observation. He says, hey, back in this time, in this day, uh, when a city is in danger of falling, people do not simply wait there to be killed. They get out. Only people who do not get out the city's defenders get killed. <clears throat> I think one of the challenges here is that many of our images in our culture today for ancient warfare have been shaped by like the Middle Ages. Right? Images of uh, you know, Knights of the Round Table and King Arthur's Court, things like that. Uh, these images where, hey, battle's coming, so everyone get into the castle and put up the barricades and all that. Um, but that's not how battle was waged in the ancient Near East. In summary here, Israel is dismantling the military forts and defense systems, and there are, they're told to leave no survivors. The fortresses are taken over with everyone either fleeing or being killed. <clears throat> okay, so these are military cities. Second paradigm shift here will be that Israel is using what I like to call ancient trash talk, right? Ancient trash talk. And here's what I mean by that. This is how uh, they talked in the ancient Near East. This is how they talked about war. You can read floods of ancient examples where um, ancient peoples are going, man, we annihilated them. We wiped them off the face of the planet. They will never be seen or heard from again. They are extinct. And then the very next year in the world history, the same people are back again, bad as ever, beating them, right? And uh, what, what you realize when you read these ancient Near Eastern war narratives that they, is that they like to use this exaggerated, hyperbolic language, kind of this ancient version of trash talk. <clears throat> I like to think of it like a basketball analogy, where let's say you walk into the locker room after a basketball game. You miss the game, you walk in the locker room, and you hear the players talking, and they're like, Dude, we wiped the floor with them. They could not get a thing past us. They had nothing on us. We just annihilated them. They got nothing on us at all. And if you take their language, the rhetoric, 100% literalistically, you'd go, dude, the score is probably like 150 to zero. Then you walk outside and you look at the score and you go, oh, 120 to 105. Like it was a decisive victory, but not as extreme as the rhetoric alone would lead you to believe. This doesn't mean that the basketball players are lying in the locker room, right? Like, you don't go, why you guys got to be lying? Come on. Like, tell the truth, right? No, it's understood as a recognized way of speaking. Now, similarly, knowing this kind of backdrop, I think, is helpful in ancient Near East. But even if we didn't have that backdrop, I would suggest to you the Old Testament demands to be read this way. It doesn't make sense otherwise. Here's what I mean. This language is extremely rare. It only shows up uh, four times, four places. Um, one of those times, God's saying, hey, when you go and do it, two of those times, there are battles, and so they did it, and then one time, is looking back retrospectively and saying, we did it, right? So there's really two battles in question, and in both of them, they make clear this is the case. So first one, big, the big main one is Joshua 9 to 12. <clears throat> what happens in Joshua 9 to 12? Well, uh, it's interesting. It's presented as a defensive battle. And so Canaan, uh, the kings and generals and all of Canaan, they rally their forces, they rally their troops, and their goal is to annihilate and take out Israel. So it's like 37 kings from northern Canaan, 37 kings from southern Canaan. And so the picture here, it's presented as a defensive battle 
where Israel is trying to defend itself from getting annihilated by others who are coming at her offensively. And this is the famous, we're told again, like the Canaan's armies are more than the sand on the seashore. Famous story where the sun stands still and God throws hailstones from the sky to kind of smite the uh, enemy armies. And a lot of the imagery and language in this is using Exodus imagery again, like what happened with Egypt and the plagues. God is arising to defend his people. And at the end of the battle, like Israel chases down and all the soldiers are either killed or, or they flee. In the end of the battle, Joshua is like all excited, jumping over now like they won. And he begins to say, dude, we did it. We defeated all the kings of Canaan. We destroyed all the Canaanites. We captured all the land of Canaan. And he says, he goes on, we utterly destroyed them. We showed no mercy. We did not leave alive anything that breathed. If you take Joshua literalistically at face value, he's saying, it's done. Promised land is ours. Game over. It's all completed. The only problem is, we are still in Joshua. Joshua 12, right? <laughs> and all you got to do is keep reading into Joshua 13 and 14 into books 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. It's not going to be until generations of books of the Bible later and generations later in the days of David that Joshua's words are actually He's either speaking hyperbolically, and in the ancient world, you know, his, his audience understands that, his original audience, or uh, the rest of the story doesn't make sense. The other story is similar. It's uh, one with Saul and Samuel uh, with the Amalekites, and same deal. Like, you go further in the story, and the Amalekites are still back again, causing trouble. Um, it's very clear within the narrative that it's being uh, used hyperbolically. So this is uh, Christopher Wright, uh, one of the most respected Old Testament scholars in the world. And he observes on this. He says, we must also recognize that the language of warfare back in this day it had a conventional rhetoric that liked to make absolute and universal claims about total victory and completely wiping out the enemy. Such rhetoric often exceeded reality on the ground. This is not to accuse the biblical writers of falsehood, but to recognize the literary conventions of writing about warfare. So you see, this is a commonly understood way of speaking back in the day. And when he says this is not to accuse them of falsehood, he's kind of going like the, like the basketball players in the locker room. You know, like, why are you guys lying? He's saying they're not lying or making false claims. It's just a recognized, understood way of speaking. Similarly, uh, again, Paul Copan, another scholar, he says, a closer look at the biblical text reveals a lot more nuance and a lot less bloodshed. Joshua was just saying he had fairly well trounced the enemy. Okay, so we've seen that these are military cities. We've seen that Israel is using ancient trash talk. And now the third and final shift, and I think the most significant, even if you don't have those first two, the third and final shift is this, is that Israel's primary language in the Old Testament for Canaan is not killing them off, but driving them out. This is the language of eviction, not murder. And like that rowdy dancer who gets bounced from the club, uh, the bad news is you got booted, right? The good news is you're still alive, right? <clears throat> this is the primary language used. Uh, as I mentioned, the drastic marching orders are very rare. They show up just a couple times. But the driving out language shows up over 50 times for Canaan. <clears throat> and here's three examples, three passages, just to get a feel and a flavor of how it's used. Deuteronomy 11, the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger. Notice 
We saw earlier how God is depicted as the primary agent doing the eviction, not Israel. And notice also the emphasis on the power dynamics, how much larger and stronger Canaan's forces. Exodus 23 says, God says, little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. Again, God's the primary agent here. And notice how little by little, this is not an overnight ejection, but a gradual process that takes place over a long period of time. Finally, Joshua 23, they look back and say, the Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. Again, God, the primary agent, and an emphasis on the power dynamics here. All right, let's wrap this up so we have time for some questions. Um, <clears throat> wrapping up here, this language of driving out, uh, does it sound familiar? Can you think of another story where people are driven out from the land? First place this language shows up is Adam and Eve in the garden. They sin and rebel and are driven out of the garden. That's just you, something similar is happening here. The, the forces in Canaan have unleashed the destructive power of sin and rebellion into the promised land, God's good garden. A lot of Eden imagery is used for the land. And God has been patient with the powers in Canaan for over 400 years. We're told in Genesis 15 that it's going to be 400 years that God is patient while his people are in slavery. And uh, Abraham's like, why won't people have to be there that long in Egypt and all? And God says, Basically, he's like, because I'm being, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full extent. So I'm, I'm being patient with the injustice of these powerhouses and all the havoc they're the world. God's patience entails the suffering of his people while, he's being impatient, while he is being patient with the justice of the world, the injustice of the world. But the good news is that eventually... God's patience. It's good news that he's patient with the injustice of our world. Uh, for you and I, like it means he's patient with us, the injustice of our world. But it's also good news that his patience will not last forever. And this is where I would suggest to you that the, um, this history has become a source of hope for our world today. Because when you think about uh, the global church and others around the world who are offering, often suffering under extreme circumstances, not just because life is hard, but sometimes because of the, uh, the result of oppression and cruelty and the abuse of power, uh, sometimes on personal levels, sometimes on institutional and systemic and massive levels. The good news here is that God is being patient with the powers of our world, but it's also good news is that one day God's patience will come to an end. The way this language imagery gets picked up at the end of the biblical story is that God eventually comes to tear down Babylon. This picture for kind of global rebellion against God and Babylon is seen as an oppressive, violent, bloodthirsty powerhouse. A picture of kind of the uh, massive, systemic, corporate rebellion of humanity and the destruction that we unleash in the world. And that's good news. It's just for many of those around the world who have the boot of power on their neck, who are crying out, how long, O Lord, until you come to vindicate and I think of going back to that time on the reservation and my friends, uh, the Navajo families and uh, many that I got to know who are believers and uh, them and others around the world who love Jesus and cry out in the midst of harsh circumstances. And many others who don't know Jesus maybe, but who cry out in the midst. And it's good news that God sees the injustice of our world. He hears 
the cries of the oppressed, and that yes, he is being patient. But hallelujah, his patience will one day come to an end. As he comes to tear down Babylon and to establish the goodness of his kingdom in its place. Thanks. Well, we're going to go into some question and response time. So again, if uh, you have a question, feel free to send that in. And um, I think Christian's going to come up here. Why is God so insistent on Israel inhabiting the already inhabited land of Canaan? Great. That's a good question. So I think there's a couple of themes that, that I find interesting. Uh, if we place this with, one of the things I think we need to do is place it within the biblical narrative as a whole. And there are some broader contexts that I think helps us understand. So if I go back to Genesis 15, where God says, um, hey, Abraham, I'm promising you this land, but you can't have it yet. How come, God? Why do my people? He's like, your people are going to go into slavery for 400 years. Why? You know, and you think about that. If I'm Abraham, I am livid. I'm like, God, I've given everything to follow you. Like, you can do whatever you want to be, but we're talking about my grandkids. You know, like, don't let that happen to my grandkids. Why? Why do we have to wait? Why do we have to endure this, you know, oppression at the hands of, of Egypt for so long uh, instead of now? And God essentially says, because I'm being patient with Canaan. It's into the Amorites. It's not reached its full extent. And so if we ask, well, who are the Amorites? Um, we're not as familiar with them today, but Abraham was. Uh, they were famous in the ancient world uh, as being the founders of Babylon. And so I think often we can sort of have this image in our head, the, this picture where Canaan is like this idyllic paradise, uh, native inhabitants where they're, you know, kind of strumming guitars and feeding each other with grapes and just living in this idyllic, you know, paradise. And that, that's a false image. The, the Amorites and their associations in the ancient world as well as in the Bible, uh, these are the founders of the Tower of Babel, and they're depicted as a violent, bloodthirsty, oppressive, conquering power. And when we go into uh, early Genesis, when Adam, there's a, when Adam and Eve rebel, they go east. And then when their kids, Cain and Abel, or Cain and, and Seth and all go east. And there's this picture of this eastward movement where uh, the people continually go east from like the Garden of Eden, Promised Land area, like eastward to eventually where they build the Tower of Babel, and that's the origins of Babylon. Right? And so God calls Abraham out of Babylon and calls him back towards the Promised Land. But I think the picture we're supposed to have here is that Babylon's not far behind, right? Like, they've come as well. And so the promised land, uh, it's not like, uh, I think the picture we should have is not so much like, here's the indigenous inhabitants from ages and ages past. And the picture we have is that Babylon has colonized and taken over and, and the same associations of violent, bloodthirsty, conquering, oppressive, kings at the top of the genocidal hill, so to speak, our reign. And, and so I think part of the narrative here is one of God's patience with the oppressive whatever. And yet now with Abraham, why, so coming back to the question then, why is God so insistent? Um, I think in essence, the picture we should see here is God is toppling the mighty and he's handing the land over to his nation of homeless, wandering slaves. There's a power disruption that's taking place. And this is a, um, 
This is a, a powerful image. So God's not kind of picking names out of a hat here. He's being faithful to his covenant with his weak and wandering people. Uh, and I don't know, to me that, that becomes a pretty powerful image. How can the Israelites maintain moral superiority in their conquest when they take slaves of their own, i.e. Gibeonites in Joshua 9? Mm, great, okay. Yeah, how can they claim moral superiority uh, when they take slaves of their own? A few thoughts. Uh, one would be this. So uh, this gets into uh, another important topic, which is kind of slavery in the Old Testament. And um, there's a, a few things that I think are helpful to kind of keep in mind. First is that, yes, slavery was bad, right? So we don't want to try and justify it, say, say, say it was this great thing. Um, but two, uh, slavery, I think our associations today have been um, uh, very much framed by chattel slavery. In uh, the last few hundred years, uh, people kidnapped from Africa and brought across um, the ocean. And, and that is a horror all its own at a, at, at a whole other level. Uh, there are laws that Israel is given in the Old Testament that explicitly confront and outlaw actions like that, kidnapping laws, right? Um, now, slavery in the ancient Near East was, A, it was still bad, but B, it was a bit different, and C, it was ever-present. I think it was hard, uh, it, w- it would only be hard, I think at the time of the Roman Empire, for example, so this is later, at the time of the Roman Empire, the statistics are something like over half of the Roman Empire were slaves. So the idea of just kind of, hey, let's free all the slaves would have been impossible in that context. And so I think what we see in um, the gospel later is a countercultural alternative that actually uh, the slaves become brothers and sisters in Christ. Right. Um, And there's a leveling of the playing field and some of the power dynamics within the church that ultimately dismantles slavery inside. In the Old Testament earlier on here, it's important to recognize that at the center of this story, Exodus is like the foundation story here. And at its center is a God who liberates the slaves and sets them free. And many of Israel's laws are given on slavery. Uh, we kind of, if you're like me, I kind of want God to just go, hey, stop slavery, no more, right? Uh, but what God tends to do in the Old Testament is rather than just kind of this ideal dropped out of heaven, um, you know, like a, a label on, on, on the nation, I think God kind of meets them within the circumstances they're at and radically raises the bar on the ancient practices of slavery and gives rights and responsibilities and expectations for how slaves would be treated that radically confront ancient practices and improve the plight of slaves. Um, so I don't know if that's helpful, but yeah, that's, yeah. those would be a few thoughts. I think, help. Um, if God does not condone violence... And genocide. How is this reconciled with the Christians throughout history who have oppressed others in the name of God? Mm, that is an excellent question. I would say it doesn't so much reconcile with them as rather it confronts them, right? Uh, and can confront us in ways that uh, we can use God at times, I think, to justify uh, agendas, ideologies, um, practices. Things where, if you were there this morning, I think you know kind of the idea that sometimes we want to tack God on as an addition to what we're already doing, where God first often brings a demolition, right? That actually tears down some of our preconceived ideas and builds it up. So I would suggest that um, when we get, 
When we get the biblical storyline in place, it confronts some of the dominant tendencies that not just Christians, but everyone throughout history tend to have. Again, like uh, all throughout history, the norm has been that people have used the gods to justify conquering their neighbors and taking their stuff. That the norm has been to see like your gods in, in your corner of the fight ring backing you up. I think. Um, I think what we see in the biblical story is the seeds of a revolution that are kind of, is kind of countering those dominant tendencies in human history and um, continues to confront when we as the church and Christians have, have contributed to that as well. We're confronted by the very story that we proclaim. In the context of the colonies establishing themselves in America and using religion slash manifest destiny to justify their actions, how is that attitude different from going on mission trips? I'll, I'll ask the question one more time. In the context of the colonies establishing themselves in America and using religion slash manifest destiny to justify their actions, how is that attitude different from going on mission trips? <laughs> That's a great question. So uh, I, I would say this. Maybe a better way for me to approach the question is to say what I think a healthy approach to international mission looks like versus an unhealthy one. Because I do think there's ways at times we can approach international mission in a way that can be kind of colonizing in a sense, right? Um, there is a uh, scholar, Lamine Sané. He's an African uh, scholar. He's at Duke. It's been a while, but he's got a great book if you're interested in digging this called Whose Religion is Christianity? And what he argues, in essence, and respected in the scholarly world on this, but is that um, in many ways Christian missions are often painted with a broad brushstroke as being uh, a tool of colonialism to conquer and oppress, whatever. And he goes, yeah, that happened at times. He's not dismissing, he's not saying it was perfect or whatever, but he's saying actually in the midst of colonialism, uh, Christian missions were often the strongest counter-colonial and counter-imperial force. Uh, and what made it so was when the Bible was translated into local languages and when those coming learned the local language. Uh, because what that did was all of the colonial process was more about bringing locals to where the colonizers were at. And what missions did, he argued, especially with Bible translation and priests learning native languages, that kind of thing, was it actually facilitated agency of local peoples um, over, again, in the midst of these powerful forces that were coming into their midst. And I, I agree with Sunday. I think he's, he's well worth reading, looking into. As it relates to kind of missions today, here would be my bet. I think healthy missions starts with uh, where there are healthy local churches on the ground present. We start with them, right? Uh, that the goal is not helicoptering in from somewhere else to like do your thing. Uh, it's actually going to do the long end game is the local body of Christ on the ground embodying the gospel and leaders there who know their language, know their culture, know their context. When a healthy local church is not there or has not been there historically, I think the best thing to do is it doesn't mean, hey, we're going to, you can't do much in a short-term trip, right? It's going to involve years. I've got friends who are, have been in the, in the deep in the Himalayan mountains uh, for almost 15 years now uh, seeking to uh, minister with an unreached people group. And that's involved learning three languages, raising their kids um, in a one-room hut with meager food, uh, living simply uh, with the people there, which means meet once a week maybe, but not at all, and others. Rice vegetables, often hard times of the year where people are going hungry. They have wanted to live incarnationally 
with the people where they're at, and that's meant for them a radical lifestyle adjustment. And so I would say there's kind of, if a people group is unreached, then the goal, and I think we see this in, in, in this kind of story, it's, it's a sacrificial, it's not an oppressive, let me come in and try and impose my way on you from the outside in. It's let me enter in from the inside out with you. And as a healthy church grows out of that, then the goal is how do we partner with healthy indigenous churches with national leaders and build relationship where we're able to support what God is doing already from the inside out on the ground there. I'm trying to sort through some of these text messages and, and present them in a way that's cohesive so we're not just bouncing back and forth as much as possible. But I can't avoid that completely. Um, how about this one? Based on the Paul Copen mm-hmm. quote, if Jericho only had 100 or so soldiers, wouldn't the, uh, uh, wouldn't the Israelites have had more than 100 soldiers, therefore be stronger and not weaker? Mm, good question. Yeah, so uh, on the Jericho, he's relying largely on archaeological evidence there at that point, saying that like it looks like it could only fit about 200 soldiers. That said, uh, it's still a military defensive system. Like if, um, I bet we like if, if God doesn't bring down the walls, uh, they don't have much of a shot going up against, you know, the, yeah, you can have a whole lot of people outside the Great Wall of China historically, but it's not going to do much, you know, unless, unless divine intervention. And so the, the bigger point theme, I think I would say, is that um, what we repeatedly see is Israel uh, not only gets a little help from God, they require divine intervention in order for them to have any shot at victory. Right. The texts just keep coming in. Uh, as you mentioned, oh, I keep losing my spot as the decks come in. As you mentioned in your intro, our nation has a tainted history of violence, sometimes in the name of Jesus. How do we seek healing in light of this history? That's great. Yeah, um, I think just the power of confession in our tradition comes here. You know, confession and lament would be two big ones, and so confession I think um, involves owning it. You know, like I think of just in. Uh, my marriage or in my family, when I blow it, the most powerful thing I can do is not try and offer rationalizations or justifications. Here's why, you know, the most powerful thing I can do is just say, I blew it, you know? Um, and I think that the grace of the gospel gives us the resources that we need to not need to try and defend ourselves. Because often I think trying to defend ourselves comes out of needing to justify ourselves so that we're not as bad as we could be so that we can be seen as okay in the light of other, you know, all that. And what the gospel does is deflate all that because it's going, kind of like, dude, God's like, I see how bad you are, and I love you anyway. I paid the price for it at the cross, right? And so I think the gospel and grace should give us the resources we need um, to be able to just own our own tainted histories in our personal lives and in our national or, you know, uh, lives. And I also think lament can be powerful as well, that um, sometimes we can have, I think, too much of a paint a smile on it, happy face emoji, superficial Christianity, where it's just, let's just be happy all the time. And yeah, Jesus brings joy, resurrection brings new life, new creation, all that, so I don't want to minimize any of that. Um, But also we see that lament is a powerful theme and thread in the Bible. The people of God um, know how to cry out to God, to own when we've done wrong, and to own when we're experiencing the wrong that others do, to, to 
to cry out and we experience the weight of our fallen, broken world. And I think part of the power for lament there is that we believe we have a God who hears. There's a God who hears the cries of his people. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time for this evening. Um, there's a prior event put in this space. But here's the good news. Uh, he has published a book <laughs> on this topic. Uh, and it's going to be available for sale in the back. And so I'd like to, to encourage you to go pick up that, that resource. I'm sure it's going to help uh, walk through and answer some of those questions. Uh, those, the questions just kept coming in. And it pains me to say I'm sorry, but they were really, really good questions. Uh, also, I'd just like to encourage you to take those questions and offer them to the Lord in the form of a prayer. Uh, the, psalmist, the psalmist would often take the unanswerable questions and bring them to God in prayer and allow God to sort through them. So uh, would you guys join me in giving Joshua a hand?